Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another Work Human Radio. I'm your host, Mike Wood. We have a very special episode for you today. Two of my good friends from down in the bayou, Robin Schooling and Mary Ellen Slater from Baton Rouge, are going to check in with Steve Pemberton today, talk about how their businesses are adapting due to COVID. And Mary is particularly going to talk about running the nation's worst homeschool at her home. And I can vouch that she's trying to make it work. She has taken calls from her closet. I'm very interested to see what people's (laughs) different working relationships are to try and hide from their kids. I've done calls in my daughter's room. I've done calls kind of in the bathroom a little bit. Closet's a pretty good one. Anyway, enjoy this talk with Steve and Mary Ellen and Robin. Hey, everybody. It's Steve Pemberton, Chief Human Resources Officer at Work Human. And as we're continuing our Keeping Work Human series, it's now our third month, actually, of the Keeping Work Human series. I'm really, really glad to be joined by two guests and longtime friends of Work Human. Robin Schooling is managing partner at Paradise Group, a boutique human capital consulting firm. And Mary Ellen Slater is the owner of RepCap, a content marketing agency. And both Robin and Mary Ellen are joining us from New Orleans. Robin, Mary Ellen, thanks for joining us today. Robin, let's begin with you. How are you? How's your family? I heard you had a new addition. Is that right? Yes, we did. Um, pre-pandemic, we brought dog number three home, adopted dog number three. The puppy, who is now about, my estimate is about 30 pounds, thinks he's a lap dog. His name is Eddie Von Schooling. And he's chewing a lot of things. So it's fun to have a new baby in the house, but exhausting. Yes, with three, three, two, yes. right? So, yes. And Marilyn, how about you and the family? How are you balancing work and children at home? Oh, so balance. That's a really funny word. <laughs> I don't know that I am balancing it very well. Things here are quite hectic. So I have a 13-year-old and a 4-year-old, both girls. And what I have learned is that they have very different needs. Like, they also have kind of different personalities. My older one is very introverted. She thinks this is great. She's been preparing for this her whole life, right? To just be able to go upstairs in her room and draw for four hours. This is heaven. The 4-year-old, on the other hand, is desperate for human contact. And right now, that means me. And, you know, they have, she crashes at least one video call a day. I cannot guarantee that you will not see her in this call at some point. (laughs) I started doing podcast interviews in my closet. It is not a walk-in closet. I don't care. (laughs) Like, I'm just in there with my clothes. You know, I mean, really, most days I feel like I'm running the world's worst homeschool. That's really what's going on here. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about at Work Human rather extensively is the different needs that children have depending on their age ranges and their personalities. Mm-hmm. Now, if your kids are, for the most part, independent, then you're okay, by and large, not fully. But it's very different if they're younger and have different needs. 
parenting won't maybe be, be as broadly defined as it has been in the past and be more specific about, well, so how old are your children? Because that means a whole series of, of other things. So, mm-hmm. well, I'm glad to hear that things are relatively sane to the degree they can be in, in these very, very different, different times. I want to ask both of you a bit about your businesses and how they've been affected by the pandemic. Robin, let's start with you. We've been very fortunate, I have to say, in that there was really minimal change to our operating structure. We've been 100% dispersed and remote in different states for close to 11 years now. And so the vast majority of our consultants have continued work unimpeded. And in fact, we have some that are very, very busy in some of our practice areas. And we did have a few engagements that just in the last couple of weeks have ended for some of our consultants as the clients have started to shift and I think, you know, get a little leaner. But overall, as a company, we've been able to maintain most everybody. We've continued to hire. I actually made a new hire today and recruit some consultants for some really specific needs. So are things changing? Are things slowing down sector to sector? Yes. But on the plus side, there is still hiring going on and there is still activity going on. So all the folks that, you know, their world has been upended, there's action out there. And so people will be able to find some things to do. And the same for you, Mariela, how has this impacted your business? So it's very similar to what Robin was describing. We were already a remote team. You know, we were already a digital team. So in that sense, we were better positioned, I know, than a lot of businesses. And I know, in fact, even early on, people were coming to us asking for guidance on how to adapt this. I know, Rob, to this, you got the same thing, Robin. Yeah. I would say similar to what Robin is describing, too. Like, so we have only lost one client, like, that was kind of caught in the crisis, Everybody else, our existing clients, in, in many cases, are actually doing more work. I think that it depends on where we're finding that with trade shows out of the picture, people still got to generate leads, right? They've still got to keep their businesses going. So they're coming to us and saying, hey, can you fill this gap? I would say the nature of the work has also changed. Whereas I'd say pre-COVID, a lot of it, you know, we would come in and have this process where it was very strategic lots of you know energy and then transfer it over and then it would kind of be on autopilot. And I would say that there's no such thing as autopilot right now, even for clients we've worked with for five years. It's like, we might have had a monthly strategy meeting before. We now have daily strategy meetings because we have to pivot that fast, like whatever. So my brain is always on. There are no easy days. Every day, like we joke about it. It's like, okay, whose business are we going to save today? You know, like that, I feel like we have that level of responsibility because without revenue, without customers, there's no business. So we take it super seriously. But it's been really intense. It's been really intense. Yeah. And over a long period of time, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've all had different moments of intensity, but rarely of this duration. Two months of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Even M&A work, which can be intense. Mm -hmm is usually has a duration, you know, to it. And, and there's this nature of, you know, kind of waves and potential of second waves and these other elements. Speaking of that, I wonder, Allison, both of you are joining us from New Orleans, a bit about how this has impacted Louisiana in particular. You know, there was a time certainly when it appeared to be that it was emerging as a major hotspot in the way that Massachusetts was and has been as well. Uh, what has that been like? And we'll switch it this time, Mary, I'll start with you. 
so what Rob and I both wanted to say, we all think we actually live in Baton Rouge, which is about an hour away from New Orleans, which might as well culturally be a world away. <laughs> like we're in the capital. But both places, both New Orleans and Baton Rouge, have are hotspots. They are hotspots. And the upside is that we have had our mayors and our governor have demonstrated amazing leadership in trying to manage this crisis. Like they've taken it really seriously, trying to protect the people of the state. Unfortunately, though, there's also a sense that it's become like a partisan issue, which is really disturbing. I mean, this is a red state with blue cities. And so there's been a lot of tension there. And I mean, I'll tell you right now, we are in theory still under restrictions. People are disregarding the rules. And I'm worried. I'm really worried for the people here of like what that's going to mean for us in two weeks. I'm not leaving my house, like, but I'm worried that, and I look around the other area, other parts of the country, I think that we're getting a little laxed a little too soon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would agree with all of that. This past weekend was a little disheartening in terms of, you know, and I understand it. There are people who are just saying, I need to get out of the house. And then there are people that have turned it, as Marion said, into this sort of partisan divide. And so it was like a gate opened and 25% of the residents all went running out of their house to go sit on various assorted patios at restaurants. In parking lots. In parking lots. Yeah, <laughs> parking lots of restaurants. You know, again, our mayor here in Baton Rouge, the mayor of New Orleans, our governor, you know, they keep reminding people to trickle things back. They're really good at messaging you know, we're all in this together and wearing a face covering is a show of respect, really, for the people that you're coming into contact with. And so we just kind of keep, you know, collectively, I think, talking about that, which is where we are. And hopefully won't, again, you know, get to the point where we are potentially overwhelming the, the hospitals and the medical system, which is the biggest issue initially. Yeah, we're going to have to find some way somehow to create a new narrative in America that is beyond partisanship because this is the last thing that should be politicized. And yet it is in stunning form and fashion. You know, it's to the point where it's almost, can you really understand what the effect, the impact that you're having? And it appears not to matter to far too many. And when it's less about that than you put it well, you wear a mask for the same reason you wear a seatbelt. It's for yourself, yes, but it's for others too. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with your driving and you may be, you know, fine, but this is asymptomatic. And so it doesn't announce itself. So that's why, you know, it should be fairly straightforward. Uh, but I do have hope in the younger generation that's kind of looking, at least I have three in my house and, you know, they're just kind of looking at all this like, they're not saying we can't wait till it's our turn, but they're pretty much saying when it is our turn, we're not going to live like this. We're not going to. Yeah find ways to unify, you know. So I, I want to ask a little bit more about now, you know, what is going to be this kind of rush to be candid, to reopen, and all of the pause and the uh, concern that that is generating. Some states are putting, you know, those plans together now. Nations are, you know, in fact. But what do you think as we return here, what changes do you think that HR as a profession is going to need to make? And let's start with you, Marianne. Well, I'm hoping that in the broadest sense, when we think about work, like with HR professionals being the architects of the way that we work, because they do have that power if they embrace it and seize it. I'm hoping that we rethink how we treat our frontline workers and our retail and restaurant workers, because I think that has really made it very clear that they are essential 
And so if we're going to call them essential now, I hope we remember that they're essential when this calms down and we need to give them the respect and the pay that they deserve and the treatment that they deserve. That means a living wage, okay? Like that means since an HR is in the position to be the architecture, like architects of that level of change to treat work, that work with the dignity that it deserves. And then the other thing is to make sure that these things, when we shifted to this flexible and remote work models, there's been a lot of resistance over the years, some coming from HR, that this wasn't possible. We can't do this. We shouldn't, you know. Oh, it turns out we most certainly can. Right? <laughs> so my hope is that not only do they keep that, like those habits and say, yeah, let's let people work from home. Let's give them flexibility. That they also open up their mindset and remember that very few things are actually can'ts right? It's not about can't. It's more often about the will and accepting that this is a strategic imperative and proactively embracing that kind of like digital transformation and the future of work. Like, I feel like before people are hiding from the future of work, right? It's like, this is your opportunity if you're in HR to build it. Like you can be the builders or you can be the paper pushers. I'd rather be a builder. Yeah. And you know, the historical pause is about working from home, trust, you know, efficiency. You know, a lot of those barriers are coming down now because you've had to trust people. You don't have a choice. Yeah, people have had to be more efficient. So this hesitation that historically has come, as you rightly put out from, from HR, not born out of reality when you have so many people who have proven time and time again. And it will expand, I think, the definition of the workforce too. You know, that maybe, you know, moms returning, you know, to work can do so sooner when a portion of this can be remote if that's the situation where it's best for her. People with disabilities, there's a, you know, certainly there's a lot of shifts and changes that, you know, should come from this. What is your take of this, Robin? Definitely those aspects Mary Ellen talked about. A couple of other things. If we want to talk real traditional HR, I think this has caused a lot of HR teams to pay attention to something that they sort of sometimes forgot. And then some basic general duty clause things related to OSHA. You know, I mean, not the sexiest part of HR, but it's come back to a heightened awareness, especially as teams start going back to offices. You know, there's heightened need now to truly maintain that safe work environment. What does that mean? What does that look like? So, you know, kind of foundational stuff, but I think that needs to be top of mind. I think another aspect, and we've we've seen some discussions, we've had some discussions about this, but I think it's really going to come home in the next two to three to months to two years. And that is an awareness, a greater awareness and understanding about employee well-being. And I say well-being, not wellness, but it's going to come roaring to the top, you know, because we've certainly learned through this that the stressors that people have in their lives intersect so much with work and jobs, you know, and how are people reacting? You know, I'm working through a pandemic for heaven's sakes, right? And and I don't stop and think about it, but that is going to also dawn on people. Oh my God, what did I just get through with homeschooling my, you know, two kids at home while hoping I still have my job and working through that and probably working more hours, you know, to keep things going. What are we going to do in HR to take care of our people as we're getting through this, but when we come out the other end of it? Because that's when it's going to impact and hit people. You know, in 2008, the 
business world said that it was really the world of finance that helped guide us through you know, the Great Recession, in essence, and the CFO in particular of organizations from large multinationals to nonprofits were mm-hmm. kind of like the anchor. And that this time around, it's HR that's going to be the one, both during this and thereafter, that's going to be the anchor, will have to be the anchor that necessitates a pivot, of course. And as leaders are assessing, you know, this kind of emergence, are there specific skills that you think they're going to have to assemble fairly quickly to the degree that they might not have them now? Robin, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, resilience and the ability to adapt quickly, because that's what we've been doing for the last two to three months, really. And so I think, again, when leaders have a chance and leadership teams can sit down and sort of do an assessment, what went well, what didn't. And I hope everybody, you know, takes the time to kind of do that thoughtful exercise. How did we respond? Did we have the capabilities to respond? What did our business continuity plan look like? What did our emergency response plan look like? You know, it was different than the hurricane sort of things that we're used to down down here, but it, you know, it was a slow moving emergency preparedness. Right, right. (laughs) You know, what did we learn and what was good? What did we do really well? How resilient were we? How could we pivot? And where did we fail? And how do we prepare ourselves for the next event, because there will be a next event. Won't be this, hopefully, but there will be something else, a hurricane, a tornado, another health crisis. There will be something. So building those skills and understanding what it takes to get through something is going to be critical. Yeah. Mary Ellen? I would say in addition to what Robin described, I think that communication skills and using them at a higher level, I think, and in different ways is going to be one of those important things to like emerge from this successfully. I mean, I think most leaders are pretty good communicators, but they often have a very limited way of doing it. If like your only way of like comforting, consoling or inspiring your people is to stand up in front of them in a room and like talk on a stage and tell them how great they are and whatever, like this has been purely a test for you, right? Because you can't do that in the same way. Like you cannot, that doesn't going to work in terms of rallying the troops, right? It is going to force leaders to learn to be more intentional about what they're communicating, how they're communicating, how often they're communicating, right? Because communicating through digital channels is not one-to-one the same as an in-person conversation. It's just different. I mean, we could say what's better, what's worse. It doesn't matter. If this is what you've got, get comfortable. The number of people I know say, oh, I hate video conferencing. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Your people need you and that's all you can give them. So learn how to give a good video talk like on video conference. Those communication skills are going to be really important. Mm-hmm. Mary, let's continue with that. As this has been unfolding, I suspect we've all had mm-hmm. time and opportunity to kind of assess all of these broader societal dynamics that brought us, you know, to this rather challenging place. And it is challenging, you know, to see in particular the adverse impact of COVID-19, those who struggle with access, losing matriarchs and patriarchs of families. You know, it's been hard emotionally on families and individuals, but also on kind of the ethos and the culture. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have to try to find some good in the midst of all of this. Have you had a chance to reflect and think about that? With the ready acknowledgement that is probably whatever you know that good is, we didn't want it to happen this way. 
Not right. this way. But <laughs> right. Uh, is there something to be found, some silver lining in the midst of all this? It's funny that you use the word matriarch because I would say, this is going to sound weird, but the thing that I'm really grateful for right now is that my grandmother's taught me how to cook. Because <laughs> I see a lot of other people freaking out about not being able to go to restaurants and like, we are eating good here. <laughs> like, like, I mean, because that's all I have. I have time and I've been sort of been part of some of these things, but it's like, I grew up in a very rural community, very poor. And it was the norm to grow food and prepare it for yourself to eat at home, go into a restaurant was crazy. I also grew up in a place with blue laws. So again, just I, I was joking that for a while, it was like, I feel like every day is Sunday in my childhood. You know, it's <laughs> like, there's nobody out on the streets and we're all home. You know, so I haven't really missed restaurants as much as I might have thought. And so every time I roll out my own biscuits, I think about my mama's. So like, that's like, and I'm teaching my children. I'm teaching my children how to make things too. <laughs> Robin, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, this is kind of what it was like, family dinners and, and all those other things. Uh, well, Robin, some good in the land, as uh, Tolkien once famously said. Uh, where is it? Well, first of all, Mary Ellen is probably about, oh, what, maybe five miles from me. I need to go over there and get some of her biscuits because I am sick of Get me a doggy bag while you're there. Right. <laughs> One of the really positive things that I've seen, and this is, I'm very grateful, I'm very thankful and fortunate to have my home and my job and my little family around me. I am grateful for the wonderful things that I see in the greater community around here. And it really kicked off very early on, almost two months ago now. And that is the funds that have been set up to take care of service workers that the community is contributing to the businesses and the restaurants that are cooking for healthcare workers, the groups that have gathered together to make lunches for the kids who are out of school who relied on that to eat. There's this awareness of there's some sort of systemic and societal issues that hopefully we'll address when we're, again, on the other end of this. But while we're living in it, there's been a lot of really good in the greater Baton Rouge and South Louisiana community to take care of each other. That's wonderful to see. People making masks and just mm -hmm. giving them to, to each other. Things yeah. like that. As you both have pointed out, locally, you know, the definition of leadership locally in particular, and that it is very much driven by community. And in many ways, it's a reflection of generations past who I think saw things like this I mean, they, they lived with the threat of nuclear war and they lived with the possibility of world wars and suffrage movements, civil rights. I mean, they saw how fragile humanity actually was. Mm -hmm. And so their anchors in goodness and in humanity came because of some of the very dark things they saw and the way in which they responded is the way Robin went out. Is, yes, exactly what you're seeing locally. That, is, that gives me hope and a reason you know, to believe as well, perhaps we will see the return of a service society where we wake up trying to figure out what we can solve and heal rather than stop and criticize. So I share the optimism that both of you have. I can't thank you enough for joining us. I know that, you know, we're all on a lot of screens these days. And Mary, I could see traffic moving along your street as we were talking. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really cool. I mean, that's like... Oh, yeah, because it's going back. You can see it in the... <laughs> that's good. I can see a FedEx logo go right by. Right, right, right. <laughs>
which is really cool, though. I mean, that's that, that's that's, a hundred years old, though. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a different time. They couldn't imagine this a hundred years ago. Right? <laughs> but thanks for all the wonderful work that you're doing. Thanks for being such uh, great friends of Work Human. We're glad to include you as part of our of our Work Human family. Wish we could have seen you in San Antonio, but hopefully we'll see you on the live stream here in the next few days uh, on the 12th. And then we will see you in San Antonio in 2021. Fingers crossed and prayers up. Thanks again, Robin and Mary Ellen, for joining us. And thanks for your insights on how the world of HR is managing and navigating these times. But I was also equally appreciative of your predictions for the goodness of humanity that is being reflected, as you both wonderfully pointed out, locally. So thanks again for joining us. And we'll see you soon. For everyone else, stay healthy. Stay safe and well, and we'll see you on the next Keeping Work Human series. Bye now. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human Live in 2020, May 11th through the 14th in San Antonio. Visit WorkHuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2020. 